listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hello, I'm Carolyn Francis. Hi everyone, and Fran Barber here. And we are looking at the readings for the 18th Sunday after Pentecost. We will be looking at Exodus chapter 17 verses 1 to 7, then Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 to 13, and Matthew 21, 23 to 32. So we'll start with Exodus, Carolyn. Um, We've obviously been following the grand narrative in the um, story of Exodus over the last few weeks um, in the lectionary and um, last week was the parting of the Red Sea and the the freedom of the people, of the Israelites. And so they're on the road here um, in the wilderness on their path to the promised land and things have started to become unstuck. They have. And let's pause for a moment on the experience of suffering that is at the heart of this story before we get on to the quarrelling people. uh, These people have been liberated from an experience of intense oppression and suffering. They have had the excitement of uh, being liberated and of seeing the defeat of their enemies and yet uh, we're told about six weeks later when they reach the wilderness of scene that uh, all is not well, um, and they don't have enough water. Which this, is dire. Which is dire. Where um, they are. Six weeks doesn't sound like a terribly long time for it to become unhinged, but uh, in the experience of desert life without water, uh, six weeks is an interminably long time. I did read somewhere in my preparation for this that um, in this is a particularly hot desert, this part of the world, and a human body under some duress like walking, um, really without water is seven hours. Survival. So, so when people are saying, um, why did you bring us out of Egypt just for our children to suffer and die of thirst? Fair this enough is a question. heartfelt cry. Yeah. I know this is a bit frivolous, but it made me think of the TV series Alone. Oh, right. Yeah, my husband's well into that. Out <laughs> in the wilderness surviving and even in quite cool climates, the people who are unable to access clean water do not last very long. No. So I suppose I'm wanting to focus on the fact that these are legitimate concerns. And the people uh, once again have found, as we so often do, that liberation or salvation is not just a matter of being saved from something, but opens up the question of what are we being saved into or liberated into. And at this stage, it appears to the people like what they are being liberated into is just more suffering. Yeah, because what we know is coming in Exodus 19, which is, you know, the commandments and the covenant with God is very far off in the distance for them. Absolutely. And so they ask that question, which is so pertinent and so timeless, is the Lord among us or not? Which is a very clear uh, focus for a sermon. I don't everyone out there doesn't yes. need me to say that, but the question of theodicy and suffering and the experience of God or not in amongst that is a perennial human question. It is. And so you know, as we say in my tradition, that will preach. Yes. Um, so this is a question we can all relate to asking. And um, 
maybe in recognition of this, uh, it's part of the reason that Moses names the place Massa and Meribah, mm. meaning uh, testing and quarrelling, which is not a victorious Or label. a divine or particularly revelatory um, name, is it? No. So we're going to acknowledge and memorialise this place as the place where we suffered and quarrelled and struggled. I mean, it has... Um, resonances of when Jacob wrestles with the angel. You know, there is something sacred and important about the places and the times at which we struggle. And one of the ways we struggle is when we suffer and we wonder where God is or if God is present at all. Mm, and many of us, the Psalms we have, um, speak of that. Absolutely. Very eloquently. Yeah, so part of our biblical tradition, you know, in a large frame is that we don't hide from or fail to articulate or recognise the very human experience of suffering and then grappling with the meaning or the significance of that suffering. And the apparent absence of God in that that suffering. And also the, the fact that our leaders sometimes you know, don't feel to us like they're on our side in the midst of that. We see it in politics all the time. Um, You certainly hear about it in any kind of vox pop that happens around election time. These people don't get it. And we have it in the church where sometimes the congregation or the community uh, doesn't feel a strong sense of the empathy or the understanding of their leaders. Or trust in them. Or trust. On what what, what they're doing. I mean, a profound thing for me in this small section of this large story, but particularly here, yes, it's um, grumbling and quarrelling that appears to be memorialised, so to speak. It's emphasised more than, as we said, the divine revelation. Um, But what is profound is in this quarrelling, God is changed, Mm. that, that... I mean, there's a response. I mean, you could say it baldly and say, well, God heard and God responded and God – and yes, that is that is what's happened here through Moses. But there's something for me more profound about God being moved by the people and being being changed God's self, which – by the plight of the people, which is quite a radical theological statement. It is. Um, God does, in the end, provide that which they need and um, – you know, Moses does it in this dramatic way at God's beckoning. Yeah, yeah. and But also that God withstands the anger. Like there's no punishment for their anger. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And but, in, yeah. The, in the Hebrew tradition there is so much of this back and forth between the people mm. and God, which sometimes I think um, in the Christian world we have to remind ourselves of that the argumentation between God and God's people is actually part of the established tradition it's part of the way the covenant gets worked out yeah part of faithfulness not the opposite which some some traditions in christianity do see it as opposite yeah. is you know d- doubt which is by definition outside i mean i guess if you're railing against god you are in a way are answering the question is the lord among us or not and mm. you're answering yes mm. like like yes i know he is but where or no god is but where yeah and why why is it the way that it is given that God is present and God is who God says he is. Yeah, yeah. This is so evocative though here, as you say, how the water does come from the rock and, um, you know, it is quite clearly the opposite of what happened last week in that, you know, the 
the water, the chaos was tamed by God, so the water was parted. And here, water is required and comes from the rock. Um, I mean, there's so much rich symbolism here because water, which has been the source of their liberation, it is, it's the thing they've been celebrating. It's what enabled their escape. It's what um, separated them from their enemies and their oppressors. And then on the other side of it, they don't even have the water that they need. And when it appears... Um, you know, we, we again have the power of water but in a completely different sense. Different way. And it's also happened in the plagues. I think the water became undrinkable and the Lord threw a piece of wood in or to make it cl- – so water is, yeah. It's so deep and I think a couple of weeks ago Monica was talking about um, the way that the, the Noah story reminds us that water can destroy – those who are wicked and save those who are no. not. Yeah. Um, so for the for the people of this story, this imagery is so deeply resonant with so much of their tradition. I do want to highlight the mention of the rock at Horeb, which I believe is the same as Sinai. So we've been talking about how the people have um, quite understandably um, become desperate and. Um, I'm going to use the word distrusting of the process, even though it was so exciting. Um, we do have here a hint of the future that they don't know yet is coming, but that that's that Exodus 16 and the giving of the covenant um, is hinted in that mention of the rock at Horeb. This is true, and it reminds us that this is one tiny part of a long story of liberation and it's not um, a linear sense of progress between enslavement and the promised land. It's a complicated journey that represents all the vicissitudes of life. Yeah, yeah. The last thing I'd want to say just in our few minutes we have here, Carolyn, is just how we, we are in wilderness. We've talked about desert, but um, that, that, that this wilderness does actually contain the gifts of God. You know, that which appears barren or um, hopeless. Actually, like the manna came in Exodus 16, um, it's not as desolate as it looks. No, and uh, the Hebrew tradition and then centuries of Christian tradition hold that that we often seek out wilderness as a place of spirituality, Mm. a place in which faith is both tested and discovered where faith is stretched but then strengthened. And so um, there's much we can teach from this short passage. And we hope we've given you some. So we'll move on now to uh, Philippians, the epistle reading this week, which is Philippians 2, verses 1 to 13. The well-known hymn, as it's called, Carolyn. Fortunately, we're given a couple of verses before the hymn at verse 5 and afterwards to give some uh, community context for for this. Yeah, this is a beloved passage and um, I'm not going to break into song, but we could. Yeah. uh, Because we we do hear from Paul um, the reason why this is important, uh, if there's any encouragement, any consolation, any sharing of the Spirit, then we will be of one mind about what is to follow. And then this hymn from the early Christian tradition 
one of our very first uh, pieces of liturgical tradition from the early church. And I think it's quite moving to imagine the people gathering and saying or chanting or singing the words of this hymn together, living as they were in a fairly hostile environment in Philippi within the Roman Empire. Philippi was a a city with a strong Roman imperial culture. It was a place in which acts of emperor worship uh, were seen as a very particular sign of loyalty and the Christians who did not participate in that were putting themselves in considerable danger. And this hymn is a, a, an act of resistance mm. in itself, um, a declaration about who is Lord and it is not Caesar, it is Jesus. And um, so I find the idea of people gathering to sing this and to sing about um, the Christ who emptied himself and whose humility was the mark of his lordship, uh, it's a deeply moving to imagine and I'm actually inspired I'm taking service somewhere this for sun, this particular Sunday I'm inspired by those ideas to actually invite the people to maybe if not sing it at least say it together yes um, for those reasons that that you outline um, Keith like this is as you say the, the center of the faith here um, really but also I'm taken by the themes of unity and humility and indeed joy um, that are mentioned here, that the unity and the humility are inseparable, Mm. um, which is a broad theme we can bring into our own communities in church and outside it, that um, most most measures or most postures that... um, uh, for the good of humi- of the of the common good or, or the community require humility on the part of everyone there and not putting themselves first and there's a there is a unity that even comes from that posture um, and I'm having mind in particular in Australia at the moment we have a referen- referendum coming um, inviting us to vote for what's called a voice for in our Indigenous First Nations people. It's becoming more and more um, heated, I suppose you could say. Uh, but it's very saddening for many of us that, that this these ideas of humility and unity have become really so lost that um, there isn't necessarily a broad understanding that that voting for something that provides a a voice for a minority who have been colonised is something we need to question. Yeah, well said. It's such an obvious point and yet one that needs to be said, again, that you cannot actually be of one mind. You can't actually um, work together if everyone is holding tightly, clinging to their single point of view arrogantly without room for others. Um, And so there are all sorts of ways in our own communities that we could talk about what it looks like to embody, as Jesus did, this spirit of letting go, of self-emptying, of choosing to give up privilege 
so that we may be one. And have our eyes on the least in the body, just to mix Pauline <laughs> metaphors here, yes. but that we have our our eyes and our arms around those who are um, the least powerful. And I mean, verse 9, which expresses that as a result of this humbling and self-emptying, God exalted him mm. and gave him the name that is above every other name. Uh, you know, this articulates the paradox really that's at the heart of the Christian gospel, which is that in seeking to save our lives, we lose, lose it. it and vice versa, and that the first shall be last. And, and all of these difficult tensions that underlie so much of what we believe or we say we believe and yet are so difficult to grapple with mm. as we actually seek to live out this faith. And then here too, the key theological point is, so you know, that imitation is mentioned quite a few times in this letter in particular and um, our invitation and, and calling to follow Christ but um, not to the point of the cross as in <laughs> we're, we're not going to be crucified. Um, but... I'm not sure where I'm going with that thought. Um, so, so we are called to imitate, but in fact we are saved by grace anyway. So that this is not an invitation to try harder and try to be better, which in fact ends up being law, Yes. but that we are invited into a reality that says this is your, this is your salvation objectively um made by the the humbling of Christ in God, live it out. Yes. So these few verses that talk about um, to continue to work out your salvation is not about, as the next verse actually makes a bit clearer, is not about trying harder but about um, living out your daily lives in that reality that God has given. Yeah, to create enough room for other people and for, as it says in verse 13, God who is at work in you. Um, and uh, we've used the word posture a couple of times, but I think it's it's essential here. The question we ask ourselves of what posture am I assuming in relation to God and other mm. people? And is it this posture that Jesus took or is it some other posture? Yeah, a standing over and above. I mean, this is very much power from non-power. Yes. It is, as you said, it's a paradox about... You know, it's it's completely contrary to worldly power and what Caesar represents, yes. and actually that puts me in mind. We'll move next to the gospel reading, but in a sense, this seems to me to be almost a um, exegesis of or commentary on the sort of authority that Jesus is embodying, or that yes, in the Matthew the gospel reading. Great segue. Great. So we'll move on to um, Matthew. Uh, chapter 21, verses 23 to 32. So Jesus has been in argy-bargy with the uh, religious authorities for at least, well, quite a while in the gospel, but in, in the last two days in particular in this story. Yes, and where... Right in that period of the increase in tension and conflict 
that marks this last part of Matthew's Gospel and the question of authority, which Matthew has been grappling with for for a decent portion of his story, comes to the forefront here. Yeah, yeah. So Jesus has cleansed the temple. It's got everyone's ire up. Yeah. Um, I actually wonder sometimes whether authority is a difficult piece of vocabulary for us. Probably. Because it's actually not uh, the word we tend to use when we're talking about these themes. We talk more about rights or power. Mm. Uh, So I wonder if in preparing to preach on this, it might be worth thinking about how do we ask these questions about authority Um, The chief priests and the elders of the people ask, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? But we might say, um, what right do you have Mm. to do that? Or um, who gave you the power to do that? And that might just be a little helpful point of reflection for people as they try to access what this conflict is about. Yeah, I think that's right. We don't use the word authority in quite the same way. No, I don't think so. But we certainly grapple with power. Yeah, and yeah. With rights. And 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 these these individuals, the chief priests and the elders, and you know, we don't want to get into some sort of caricature um, that ends up being anti-Semitic about this. Here, we need to focus on the issue that is causing the problem. Absolutely. Um, but they are wealthy elites. Um, they controlled large parts of the land in Judea. Um, they're virtually perhaps identical or can be associated with the Roman authorities as well. They could be, but they also have responsibility for the people. Yes. And someone is speaking and teaching in an unusual way in the temple and they ask, what right do you have to do this? And so um, rather than just skip immediately to the idea that they represent all that is wrong with the world – I think that they are also concerned about things that we are concerned about. Um, who is speaking on mm. behalf of God mm. in our communities and what wisdom or otherwise are they sharing? Yeah, yeah. And and as a minister, if you might be in that place, it's your responsibility to ask those questions sometimes. I think it is. And um, I'm just really aware of our tendency to jump very quickly to setting the goodies and baddies mm. in these gospel stories. But I think if we can pull back from that just a, a second, we have a richer story yeah, yeah. to tell. Yeah. Um, so in true form, Jesus is responding to their question indirectly yes. <laughs> and namely with another question. So they wanted to, to catch him out almost, well, in this process. But yes. So he starts questioning them about how they've responded to the ministry of John the Baptist. And um, they're in a bit of a corner because if they say, oh, he's just human and then the people will, you know, get cross with them. Um, but if they say, oh, he's from God, then that indicates that they agree with what Jesus is doing, which also gets them in hot water. It does. So it's a clever comeback from Jesus. But their process really interests yeah. me as well because at least the way it's presented here, they're not really grappling with the questions. They're grappling with what the outcome will be. Yeah, what will people think? What will people think? Um, And for those of us who've spent many years in congregational leadership, uh, we do this. Mm. We worry about how it will be received, about what the impact will be, about what unrest or displeasure looks like 
Um, so they are trying to come up with an answer that does not cause conflict and unrest. And I think that that's... But well, they've come up with it, which it could at, at first blush, you might say, well, that's quite, um, I don't know, humble. We don't know. Maybe. But no, I don't. it's not, obviously, here. They're not wanting to commit for good or bad reasons. We do not know, I guess. But then Jesus responds in typical Jesus fashion with a, a short parable, a traditional two sons story. Yeah, connecting with all um, Israel's long tradition of brothers of Cain and Abel and um, Jacob and Esau and Joseph and his brothers. So these are not just fi- sort of random Sons. No, I mean, all of the imagery here is d- deeply part of the Hebrew tradition, the two sons, the vineyard as mm, a as metaphor Israel. for yeah. Israel, um, and this sense that uh, whatever gets worked out here, it is in the context of this relationship between father and sons. And Well, and also in the telling of the story, Jesus is, is asking these um people, these religious authorities, to locate themselves. Where are you? And they do. And they do. Which is interesting because they weren't keen to answer the former questions, but they're happy enough to answer this question and it's an interesting response. Mm, mm. So uh, is it better to say that you'll do something and not not do it or to be non-committal with your words but faithful with your action and when it's put as starkly as it is in this parable that's one thing but of course most of the time in life this difference between our actions and our words words and deeds is often quite complex Mm -hmm. and I mean and at the risk of cutting to the chase the theological point here is that in Christ it's not that there there is no dislocation between word and deed as we've just read in the hymn yes god is as god does in jesus christ and that's the distinction of the relationships that are otherwise depicted here that's right at a, at a simple level the answer to the question of what is god like is answered in the human life of jesus and the rest of us are doing an imperfect mm. job of trying to uh perhaps shorten the distance between our espoused mm. theology and our lived theology. Clearly too, and, and importantly, the end of this passage, which is not, it goes on to verse 14 of chapter 22. So this is really this whole conversation where it's cut off here. But the authorities aren't excluded in the end of this. I mean, he's, Jesus is, is trying to pin them down and get them to see clearly Um but they're not excluded for, for their wrong answer. They don't, they're not excluded from anything here. Well, they're not excluded, but he uh, gives a strong response because I think to suggest that tax collectors and prostitutes mm, well, are going to the kingdom yeah, yeah. of God ahead of them would be considered firm. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so I suppose there's an openness to transformation. There is, but there's a reordering of the social structure. Um, so perhaps they will still be going to the kingdom of God, but those who will get there ahead of them are the people they have seen as well below them in any social or religious hierarchy. 
which is highly objectionable. I mean, that is deeply offensive. It's deeply offensive because this tradition they're living out and the answers they're giving to questions are not things that have come to them recently or lightly. This is a long-lived tradition and Jesus is upsetting a structure in which they're deeply comfortable. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good point to close. Thanks, Carolyn. You're welcome, Fran. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.